right. So tonight we're going to start Revelation. There's a couple of different approaches to Revelation. One of them is that it's historical. In other words, that all of it has already happened, and the apocalypse happened uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem, and the stuff that is written in there that didn't actually happen is metaphorical. Um, that's one approach. Another approach is that the whole thing is metaphorical. In other words, it's not intended to be prophetic at all. Another approach is that it's sort of a combination of historical and prophetic. In other words, some of the stuff has already clearly happened, and some of the stuff is yet to happen and will, in fact, literally happen. That happens to be the approach I'm going to take. But understand that there's lots of people out there that don't think that's right. I was hearing, a, listening to some Bible teacher a while back, talking to a rabbi, and they were talking about the New Testament. And you know, the rabbi had studied the New Testament, as lots of Jews have. And when they finally got to talking about the book of Revelation, the rabbi says, that's a stolen book. In other words, that's not a Christian book. It's a Jewish book. It's been stolen. And the way I'm going to approach it is we've got the introduction and the letters to the churches, which I think are sort of, in a way, separate, and then you go forward in time. We'll talk about them in chunks. And I hope to get through the introduction tonight, uh, start on the letters to the churches next time, and then we'll get into Revelation 4 and beyond, which is the stuff that everybody wants to come for. My perspective on Revelation is John was a priest. Okay? Uh, actually, before I go there, there's still the question of who wrote it. And again, there are different opinions on who actually wrote it and when it was written. And the various opinions have to do with uh, the opinions of church fathers. The majority opinion seems to be it was written by John and the Apostle John. And being as how John the Baptist was dead. Uh, he, he didn't make it out of the Gospels. Uh, yeah, John, John the Baptist didn't make it out of the Gospels, so when you're talking John, you've got to be talking John the Apostle. And the idea was that it was written in about 90 to 95 A.D. from the Isle of Patmos when John was in exile. There is one church father, I don't remember his name, who is of the opinion that John was martyred in 70 A.D., which would have meant that if he had written this, it would have to be written before 70 A.D. And again, that's sort of a, an outlier opinion. But one of the things that gives it some credence is the book of Revelation doesn't directly talk about the destruction of Jerusalem under the Romans. And that would have been a big deal, which happened in 70 A.D., which would have been 20, 25 years before Revelation was actually written, or allegedly written. Anyway, I think it was written in about 95 A.D., and I think it was written by John the Apostle. And I think John was a priest, and I'll show you why I think that in just a minute. So the approach I'm going to take is that this is basically all priestly tabernacle temple talk. Okay? So as you, you, you 
see metaphors and, and stuff like that that happen in the book, I'm going to go back to the temple or the tabernacle for interpretations. I'm reading right now a book by a guy named Alfred Edersheim on the temple, and he goes through the temple, basically a day or a year in the life of the temple, and he talks in detail about what was actually done at the various sacrifices, you know, where they chained the thing up, the, the sacrifice up, what the various sacrifices were for, who did it, uh, you know, just all of the minutia of the detail of how the temple was actually run. And he's got quite a few cross-references to the book of Revelation in there. So I'm going to be depending on him for my understanding of how the temple was run, in addition, of course, to the stuff in Exodus and Leviticus, where God lays out how he wants the thing run, but there's a lot of detail in Edersheim that it's not biblical. And he takes that from uh, rabbinic and historical writings. So, why do we think John was a priest? To see that, you need to go to uh, the book of John and go to verse 20, or chapter 20. And this is a description of the resurrection. Okay? Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, and, and of course, everybody that I know of, to include me, thinks that the disciple that Jesus loved, or Yeshua loved, is John, the author of the Gospel. In other words, this is his way of being modest when he's writing the gospel, if you will, by referring to himself in the third person. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So what, you know, Peter and, and John are both running to the tomb because Mary has said that the body's missing, and John gets there first. Verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. This is the one who got there first, didn't go in. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. In other words, Peter just blew right on past him and went, into the, went straight into the tomb. Okay? He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Yeshua's head, not lying on the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Okay? So the, the sequence is, you got these two uh, disciples, Peter and John, and they're both beaten feet down there, but John's a faster runner. So John gets there first, and John comes to a screeching halt outside of the tomb, and does not go in. Peter comes by and blows right past him, goes into the tomb, and Peter then discovers that there is, in fact, no dead body in there. And at that point, John goes ahead and goes into the temple, or to the tomb. And what I am suggesting to you is, remember, we are in the Passover season. It's a feast of unleavened, in fact, it would be first fruits. And... If John is a priest, as I believe he is, 
John would have been purified for the sequence of holy days. Because when they had, you know, Passover and, you know, the big feast, it was all hands on deck as far as priests were concerned. Okay? So what I'm speculating is that the reason that John didn't go in is because he was ritually clean and could not come in contact with a dead body or a tomb without then having himself depurified again. Okay? Does that also make sense? So the reason that I believe that John was a priest is because of that sequence of events. You know, otherwise, had he been the first one there, he would have stuck his head inside the tomb, looked around, and, you know, that kind of thing. He didn't do that. He stayed clear of the tomb until Peter went through it and discovered that there was, in fact, no body there. As I say, my perspective on the book is going to be that John is a priest, that being a priest, John is intimately familiar with the procedures and processes that were done in the temple. In other words, he, he, he's, he's a specialist. And it's sort of like when you get around a specialist in any field, a specialist has his own language. And so John is... is yeah, that's why I always use engineering examples when I teach. Sure, exactly. And so John being a specialist and having his own set of technical terms that he's used to using, I believe that a lot of the descriptions in the book of Revelation are in fact with respect to the temple. And of course when we get later on in the book where we've got you know the altar of, of incense and all that kind of stuff that's going on in there, the temple is a functional copy of the throne room of God. It's designed to be that way. Because you remember when Moses comes down with the plans for the temple, or the tabernacle, I'm sorry, he is told to make it according to the one that you saw while you were in heaven. Now remember Moses spends time up on the mountain in the presence of God. And God's instruction to Moses is when you're building this tabernacle, all right, you saw one set up. You know what it's supposed to look like. Here are the specs. Fill in the details yourself to make it look like the one that was in heaven. Okay? So the temple and the tabernacle, if you will, are functional earthbound copies of the throne room of God. So as we read about the, the descriptions of the things that are happening in heaven in the book of Revelation, we can refer back to... Exodus and Leviticus to sort of see if we can flesh out what's actually going on in terms of temple service. Does that also make sense? Yeah. Well, I was curious because it said you said he didn't have been entered later. Would he would just be in the tomb ceremonially? Yes. Yes. So then he was willing to be ceremonial and clean to see what was going on. No, there wasn't a body in there anymore. But but the tomb itself, because he said a tomb or a body, just the, if there's a body in it. It, if there's no body in it, then it's just a hole in the rock. Okay. okay? And and if you read some of the accounts of um, Passover and so forth, they would do things like whitewash tombs preparatory to the major feasts. That wasn't to dress them up and make them look spiffy. That was so that you could tell that there was a tomb there, so that you didn't inadvertently go into it or come up against it or come in contact with it and make yourself unclean for the Passover. It was, in fact, rabbinic 
law, rabbinic understanding, that coming in contact with an occupied tomb rendered you unclean, even if you didn't actually handle the body inside of it. Okay? So, for John, if he's a priest, and I believe he is, when he comes up against a tomb, his natural reaction is, hit the brakes, because I can't come near this thing, because then I would be unclean, and I wouldn't be able to do any of the stuff having to do with unleavened bread. Okay? Yeah, I so, understand that part. It's just that there was a body in it, so I didn't know in their mind that still made it unclean. Even yes, it would have still been unclean. Um, in, in other words, I, I don't know that a rabbi would have agreed with John's interpretation at that point because there had at one point been a body in there, Yeshua's, but only one. Remember, it was a brand new tomb. Yeah. It was not, not a, I mean, it w- was eventually going to be a family tomb. You know, the, again, the deal was the way they handled dead bodies is they basically anointed them, wrapped them and stuff, and they put them in a tomb and they just left them there in the, and they decomposed. And after a year or so, so, what they would do is then go in and collect the bones and put the bones in a smaller ossuary or a, a box so the tomb would be used over and over again. Okay? And the scripture says that this particular tomb that Yeshua was laid in was brand new and had never been used. And the scripture goes to some links to make that point. Now, I don't know how that figures into John's calculus as he's standing outside the tomb when he sees that it's in fact empty and that Yeshua is gone. I don't, don't know what mental process he went through that it was now okay to go in, but he did. So let's start. The revelation of Yeshua Messiah, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, so this is a revelation given by God to Yeshua, passed on to John. Okay? So the original revelation is given by God. And it's given to Yeshua, passed on to John, and John's job is then to pass it on to his servants. He made it known by sending an angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua Messiah, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I, I, I intend to reap this blessing because by the time we're done, I will have read this whole book aloud to you this way. Okay? And for those of you who, for one reason or another, do not read it aloud, blessed are those who hear. Okay? So it isn't just the reader, but it's also the hearer that reaps a blessing. In addition to, if we read down to verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And, and so it says that the guy who is writing this is John. In other words, the writer of this book identifies himself as John, right? Backing up, uh, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. There are one of the characteristics of the Gospel of John is that it is just chock chubby full of sevens. The, the whole Gospel of John is organized around the number seven. Okay? So is Revelation. And one of the things that Revelation has is, in fact, seven blessings. This is the first of them. And we'll point the others out as we get to them. But again, 
the structure or the style, if you will, is very similar in that respect to the Gospel of John. So it, to me, it lends um, credence to the idea that John wrote it. So verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Yeshua Messiah, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Okay, it's a letter, and you have there, you know, on a business letter up, up in the upper left-hand corner of a business letter, you've got the addressees, and, and if it's a military letter, uh, it's in fact written in this style. This is who it's from, this is who I am, and this is who you are. And both of those show up in the upper left-hand corner of any military letter. And those of you who have been in the service are well aware of that. So the first thing is, from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Yeshua Messiah, the faithful witness. So what we have here is, if you will, in the salutation, you have the Trinity. Okay? So the one who was and who is and who is to come in this particular formulation is what we call God the Father. Um, it could be God the Son in another context, but here it's God the Father because Yeshua, the Messiah, is listed separately. Okay? Is this Elohim? Uh, it doesn't say. It doesn't, you know, the question was, is this Elohim? In other words, the question is, what name of God is being used here in communicating? And, of course, those of you who have spent any time in Torah and especially the Old Testament realize that God uses different names of, his, of himself depending on what he's doing. Unknown here. It's simply a description of him as the pre-existent eternal one but it doesn't give any idea whether it's Yehovah or Elohim or El Shaddai or, or whatever. It's just not, not obvious at this point. So then we have the seven spirits who are before his throne. And if you go back to Isaiah uh, chapter 11, what you'll find is the delineation of those seven spirits. And so in Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We have in the past gone through about an hour's worth of midrash on those seven spirits. Okay? And what it does is it forms a menorah. And you have the Spirit of the Lord being the central shaft of the menorah, and then these pairs starting on the outside of the menorah, working their way into the center. So what we have here is basically the Holy Spirit being described. So, that, so our salute, and, and then from Yeshua, and Yeshua has got three titles that are given to him in this letter. And, and the first is the faithful witness, the second is the firstborn of the dead, and the third is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, now if you think about that, that describes his ministry. 
So as he was walking on earth, he was the faithful witness. And he was witness to the plan, the love, the prophecies of God. In other words, we've said before that being raised from the dead is not what makes Yeshua the Messiah. And while being raised from the dead is a big deal, it isn't unique. Okay, There are quite a number of people in Scripture who have been raised from the dead, and none of them except one is the Messiah. All of them except Yeshua died again. So, for example, Elijah and Elisha each raised somebody from the dead. Well, those people went on to live some period of time, and at the end of that period of time, they died again. Same with Lazarus, who was raised by Yeshua. He was raised from the dead. Yeshua was using him as a training aid, I guess. And then, at some point later, he died. The only one who has been raised from the dead and has not subsequently died again is Yeshua. So being raised from the dead is not what makes him the Messiah. It's not what makes him the Son of God. It's not what makes him our Redeemer. Being raised from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures and fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament are what makes him who he is. Or what, back up, I said that awkwardly. Let me say it another way. He is who he is. In other words, he's not made who he is by that, but the reason we know that that is who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and I believe God himself, is because in his life and walk, he in fact fulfills all of the prophecies in the Old Testament about him on his first advent. Being raised from the dead isn't what does it. It's fulfilling the prophecies that are what does it. So the second one is the, first, the second of his titles. The first was a faithful witness. The second of his titles is then the firstborn of the dead. And we talked about firstborn because remember the firstborn is, is kind of a big deal in Scripture. Because you remember when we had the destruction of Egypt in the ten plagues, the ultimate plague was the death of the firstborn. And we talked about that when we were going through it. And the significance of the firstborn is that it represents the future. Okay? In other words, if you don't have a firstborn, you don't have any others. So the firstborn then is symbolic of the future of a people. And so what God did in the ten plagues of Egypt is he basically he destroyed the world because the ten plagues of Egypt mirror the ten statements of creation in Genesis and then we have a recreation in the ten words at Sinai. Right? Yet ten words of creation at Genesis, ten of destruction in Exodus, and then ten of recreation and rebirth at Sinai. And the reason the firstborn then is such a big deal, and that's why the, that's the culminating uh, strike against the old world, is by destroying the firstborn, what you're doing is metaphorically cutting off their future. In other words, this is destroyed, there is no future for it. Well, Yeshua then is the firstborn of the dead, right? So, what's that mean? That there are going to be many more. In other words, the fact that he is the firstborn is God's way of saying that 
there will be many more. And of course, we know there will be millions more who are raised from the dead. And so being the firstborn of the dead is a category, if you will. He is God's assurance to us that we, in fact, are going to be raised from the dead, Yeshua being then the firstborn. Does that sort make sense? Okay, cool. And then finally, we have the ruler of kings on earth. Well, we know that during his first advent, he didn't rule anybody. Yet his title is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So that must be something that is then yet future. And of course, if you go back to the prophecies of the Messiah, what you discover is, and in fact, one of the reasons that, Yeshua, that the Jews don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah is because there are a whole bunch of messianic prophecies, specifically the restoration and regathering of Israel, that didn't happen. And the Jews read that and say, hey, it says right here the Messiah is going to regather Israel, the Messiah is going to rule over all the earth, and this guy didn't do that. And because he didn't do that, he didn't fit the prophecy. Therefore, he's not the Messiah. It makes perfect sense. And of course, in Christian understanding, and my understanding is that you basically have two advents. You have the first advent where he is the, comes as the Messiah, the son of Joseph, and the second advent where he will come as the Messiah, the son of David. And in his role as the Messiah, the son of David, he will, in fact, rule over all the kings of the earth. So again, we see that as two different advents. The Jews see that all as yet future. Uh, we are at about verse five and a half here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So the even so, amen, is John's acknowledgement and understanding that when he does come the second time, he's going to kick butt and take names. In other words, he is not going to be the mild-mannered Lamb of God. He is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and his rule and the coming of his rule will be terrible, as in awesome. And John says, even so, amen. In other words, even so, even though this is going to be a terrible time, even so, so be it. Yeah? Is, is the word tribes mm -hmm. just another word for nations? question was, is the word tribes in verse 7 just another word for nations? Let's go back to Psalm 2. Yeah, uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? So we have nations and peoples. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and, ruler, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have given you today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession, and you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay. So there's your prophecy of the Messiah being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so, but back up to the beginning, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? I, you know, I'm not looking at the Hebrew, but one of the ways you can look at that is today, modern nations often span tribes or vice versa. So, for example, perfect example from the news, you've got the Kurds, okay, in the Middle East. The Kurds are a people. The Kurds are divided among three nations, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. Now, I don't know that's, that that's what's being said here, but clearly in Psalm 2, it does differentiate between peoples and nations, and that could be one explanation of it. Back to Revelation. I am at verse 8. <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. All right. Now, one of the things that we're going to have that's going to be interesting as we go through this is you have this concept of the Alpha and the Omega, or if you were in Hebrew, the Aleph and the Tav. Okay? And I have no idea which one John said. In other words, whether he was speaking in Hebrew and it got written down uh, in Greek as Alpha and Omega. If he had been saying it in Hebrew, it would have been Aleph and Tav, which is the A to the Z, which is simply a way of saying everything. Okay? And right here, it clearly refers to God the Father. Okay? No question whatsoever. As we go along, what we're going to see is Yeshua is going to be referred to as the beginning and the end. This is one of the places that you can go for those of you who are Trinitarians, as I am, to demonstrate that Scripture talks about Yeshua in the same terms that it talks about God. And, and so as we go on, be alert for the Alpha and the Omega. That will happen three times in the book of Revelation. Uh, once here at the beginning and twice toward the end. Okay. And you also have the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, you have terms applied to Yeshua that indicate similar span of existence, if you will. Made great progress. Verse 9. I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are on Yeshua was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. So again, Patmos is, is a, an island, uh, Mediterranean island, off of the coast of uh, Turkey. And extra-biblical sources indicate that John got himself crosswise with somebody in the empire and got exiled. And that that's the reason he is on Patmos. In other words, he, he is there. It, it's a prison colony as far as he's concerned. He's not out there, you know, soaking up the Mediterranean sun and, you know, cruising around and drinking pina coladas. He is, in fact, in, in exile. And the reason he's in exile is because of the word of God and the testimony of Yeshua. 
So he is in exile for being himself a faithful witness. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This then is his account of a vision that he received. And so from this point on, we are dealing in visions. And he is in the Spirit, if you will, as several other people in biblical history have been and have been basically sucked up into the overhead spiritually and the time that he is dealing with is the day of the Lord okay uh, there are people who will try and get that to be Sunday I think that's heifer dust I think we're talking about the day of the Lord and especially as you get on into the revelation it becomes very obvious what his time frame is so I think he has been sucked both vertically and horizontally forward in time to the day of the Lord, and he is watching all of this from heaven, spiritually. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the, day, on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Okay, we'll, we'll go through the seven letters of the seven churches next time. I'm not going to get into that, and we will go through that list and you know, lay them out on a, geographically and, and spiritually and temporally and everything else. So we'll spend probably several sessions on the letters to the churches. I'm not going to spend any time on it right now. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. All right, now we're getting into temple talk. Okay. So when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Clearly, this is Yeshua, and he is dressed as a priest. And if you go back to the, ver the book of Exodus, and it describes the vestiture of a high priest, this is an incomplete description of that vestiture. In other words, it, it doesn't talk about the ephod, and it doesn't talk about all that other stuff. Why do you suppose that would be? Ah, why doesn't he need that? Holy unto the Lord. Okay, so the license plate on the head is holy unto the Lord. He is the Lord. Cool. How about the, the breastplate with the, and the, the epaulets and all that kind of stuff? You know, the, the breastplate and the, you know, the epaulets and, you know, the, the, the names of the tribes carved on their shoulders and all of the other stuff. Why do you have any of that? Comment was because it's a different order of priesthood, and that's probably a good answer. I think there's more to it than that. You're, you're on the right track. If you go back to the description of the priest kit, Right, you know, you got the carved stones and all that kind of stuff, and the urim and the tumim, and and all that kind of stuff. If you look at 
the reason that those stones exist with the names of the tribes and so forth is so that the high priest can bear their iniquity before God. And you remember when we went through the encounter at Sinai between the 12 tribes and God. God's original intention was to speak the Torah and have it be written on their hearts, on hearts of flesh, right? And the tribes said, whoa, Moses, if we listen to any more of this, we're going to die. We'll stay down here. You go talk to him. You come back and tell us what he said. Okay, it's at that point that we have the Torah written on tablets of stone as a metaphor for hearts of stone. And then we have the incident with the golden calf. And so the tabernacle on earth is a technical solution that allows God to live among his people without destroying them. Okay, remember we've talked about this in Midrash. The whole reason for the tabernacle is because you have a sinful people and you have a holy God in their midst. And if God lives in the middle of that people without some kind of shielding, the people are going to be consumed. Okay? So the high priest bears with him symbols of the hard-hearted and sinful nature of the people. Right? And that's what the stones are, and that's, you know, on the, on the shoulders and on the breastplate. All that kind of stuff is by way of reminder as the high priest goes into the holy place that he is coming representing people who have hearts of stone. And in fact, he himself has a heart of stone. And he is representing a people who are full of iniquity. And the whole purpose of all of this is so God won't destroy them. Right? We all together? Okay. The reason Yeshua doesn't wear that is because it doesn't apply. In the first place, he has made the sacrifice that, in fact, washes away sin. As somebody said, he doesn't need the license plate holy unto the Lord. He is the Lord. Okay, so that's redundant. The, the stones and all that kind of stuff are also redundant. He doesn't need the Urim and Tumim. Why? Yeah, he doesn't have to inquire of the Lord to make a decision. Remember the Urim and Tumim where you cast those to get a decision from God? He doesn't need that stuff. He is God. Okay, So you see the description of his vestiture is sort of a high priest light. Except that he's not a high priest light. He's a high priest heavy. But he doesn't need a lot of this stuff that the high priest of Israel needs because most of it doesn't apply. Okay, so it's not described here. Verse 7, it's almost identical. Yep. Comment was that this is very, very similar to the description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel. And, and of course, then it describes the hair of his head and, and white, as, white like snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. Um, and, of course, we'll talk about the seven stars and the seven lampstands in just a minute. Because he's going to explain those to he's going to explain those for us. So we don't need to speculate there. We'll just wait until he tells us what they are. Uh, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And again, this is obviously the word of God. Where do we know that from? Book of Hebrews, right? Uh, Hebrews four, twelve. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is obviously metaphoric 
language. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell to his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. (laughs) Okay. And again, we've said this before. Signature behavior when someone is comes into contact with Yeshua. And I believe in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord that shows up in lots of places, Daniel, for example, is Yeshua. Signature activity is that the ones around him go down like a sack of rocks. And the first word that comes out of his mouth is, fear not. Obviously, if the first thing that he's got to say is fear not, then the natural inclination of people when faced with him is terror. Okay? In other words, his aspect is terrible in the literal sense of the word. It causes terror because people routinely lose their legs and everything else and go right on down when he shows up. Remember when the uh, messengers appeared to the shepherds in the field at the time of the incarnation? What was the first thing that came out of their mouth? Fear not. Now, for those of you who, ever, who have ever had a supernatural experience, you know, been involved with demons, either getting rid of them or fighting them off, uh, any of those kinds of things, one of the things that typically happens, at least to me, is every hair on my body just goes, and it's just like, you know, you stuck your finger in a socket, and every hair on your body just goes, uh, and so I, I, I can barely imagine what it must be like to be in the presence of the living God. Okay? And and Ray is absolutely right. A lot of this is visual, and what John is trying to do is use words to paint you a picture or paint you an image in your head. Uh, I I agree with that. So anyway, uh, when I saw him, verse 17, and I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. So I am the first and the last. Alpha and Omega? Okay. Then that's you know another way of saying the same thing. And the living one. So what's that? It's also a statement of unconditional existence. Okay. Remember? What's that? I am that I am. Yes. Remember in the book of John? where he's duking it out with the Pharisees in chapter 8. And they said, you know, how can you have seen Abraham? You're not yet 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up up stones and and were going to stone him because he was saying, I am one who has unconditional, independent existence. I am. Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that, you, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Keys to death and Hades. I don't know how we have time to do that. <laughs> okay. We've got... There are a couple of things I want to say about these two. Yeah, well, all right, then, then maybe we'll, we'll defer this, because uh, if you go back to keys, you've got the keys to the kingdom of David, okay, that he's going to have. You're going to have the keys to death in Hades. 
you're going to have an angel that has the keys to the pit. And there's all sorts of stuff that's going to be going on with these keys, and the fact that he has them is significant. Um, we've got three minutes, and I don't think we're going to be able to do that justice, so let's just go ahead and hit it there next time. And, and, and that way we can get a good run at it, and we're not trying to rush and, and, and hurry over it. Okay, I'll read verse 20. Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. There's the outline of the book. Past, present, and future. Okay, so the, the instructions to John are to write about the past, the present, and the future. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so remember again, he's being instructed to write to these seven churches back in verse 11. And so Yeshua is interpreting these symbols. He is standing among seven lampstands, seven churches, and he's got seven stars in his hands, which are the angels or messengers, if you will, to these seven churches. Okay, so what we'll start with next time is the subject of keys and how all that plays out. And God willing, we'll then start getting into the letters to the churches. Would somebody like to close in prayer? Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.